Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, 22-35, the Jerusalem Council decree is what we'll be looking at today. And we're going to learn a lot about the church and about biblical communication, about speaking the truth in love. May the Lord bless us as we come to His Word today. Brothers and sisters, please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now, Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a long time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. <clears throat> so, so far in Acts 15, we've seen the origins of the Jerusalem Council where 
there in Antioch, they were troubled by some folks who came out from James and told them you had to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. And through that dispute, a delegation was sent from the church at Antioch to Jerusalem to get an answer. We looked at Galatians and how it fits in with the Jerusalem Council controversy. We looked at that next to see really that Paul wrote the book of Galatians in the context of this controversy so we can learn so much about what was at stake and about the true gospel. And then we looked last week at the judgment that they brought forth and how they settled the matter in their judgment and the way they went through that and the wisdom that we can gain from that and the way the Lord works in these formal councils that he brings together four times like this. Today we'll look at the Jerusalem Council decree itself. Original title was Regional Church Communicates Clearly, but maybe better titled uh, Biblical Communication uh, because it's more than just clarity. The first point to be emphasized in the sermon today comes from 1 Timothy 3.15, which you've heard me quote before. Uh, In that letter to Timothy, uh, Paul writing on the qualifications, after writing on the qualifications for elders and deacons in that particular chapter, he then says, I write, this is to Timothy, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. What does Paul mean by this phrase, pillar and ground of truth? Both of these words are very similar. A pillar is a column, prop, or support. And the root word there is to cause, to stand, to make firm, to fix, to establish. So think of a post that will not move, no matter what hits it. The ground, this word ground is very similar. It's a stay, a prop, a support. And the root word means firm, immovable, and steadfast. The church is to be an immovable, steadfast, that God is making it this way, invincible support for the truth. And I think we sung it beautifully, sang it beautifully just now, how the church holds forth the light, the lamp is the truth that the church ever holds forth. So God's church, the visible household of God, gathered together by Him, by His Spirit, through Him bringing in His elect, This church, with its members and with its office bearers, is placed in the earth throughout time, not as the source of truth, not as an authority apart from Scripture, but as the steadfast structure assigned by God with the duty and authority to firmly and clearly uphold the truth of God before the world throughout all generations until His return. And in Acts 15, we see practically how the church councils are to serve as this pillar, as this ground of truth during times of dangerous disputes that threaten the gospel. And as you've heard me say, I believe we continue to live in a time like that now where we need to have another worldwide council to eliminate secular humanism and establish the dogma of God's law as the guiding tool in dominion over the earth. So today we'll look at what happened when they had reached their conclusion and what they did next, and we'll learn from it. First, we'll see that they decided upon personal communication. Then we'll see they decided on written communication, and we'll discuss the synergy of those two things. They work off one another. We'll look at the greeting, the reasons for the letter, and then they emphasize that this is a personal communication. And then we'll look at the decree itself, and in this we're going to see woven together the whole time, speaking the truth in love. The tenderness, the compassion is start, middle, and end as things are being clarified, as they are stating the truth. And then we'll see the fruits of this, the rejoicing and encouragement at Antioch that took place, and the mutual encouragement back and forth between the churches. We see regional churches, the regional churches strengthened through these types of events. We'll see Providence uh, with Silas deciding to stay in Antioch. Of course, he probably wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for this controversy. And now he's there, and we'll see in the future the big role he plays with Paul in his second missionary journey. And then Paul and Barnabas are back into their normal routine, ministering once again to the church, but with even greater encouragement, and we see church growth. So we'll look at the fruitfulness of biblical communication and responding to church divisions properly and how, again, If we do that, by God's grace, it will strengthen his church. It will grow his church up in encouragement and in number. 
So first of all, personal communication. Verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. The first thing for us to note here, again, is representative leadership. The apostles and elders decided, and the whole church agreed with them. And from this, we uh, see the concept of a plurality of elders guiding a local church. Next, we see the Lord accomplishing unanimity. He gives one accord. One accord is brought to all of these people, and it is worth noticing. The fruit here is the fruit that comes from walking in the Spirit together. And verse 28 makes it clear. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So there's no hope for this kind of unity amongst sinners if we are not all together before the Lord seeking His glory. The commentary says, a happy concord, all agreeing as one man by one spirit. That's the only hope for such a thing. And the unanimity here is both in the judgment itself and in the means of communicating the judgment's decree. So not only did they have wisdom in the decision, they had wisdom in how to communicate it. Commentary says, the advice which James gave was universally approved and agreed to. That is, unanimously And letters were accordingly sent by messengers of their own to the Gentile converts, acquainting them with their sentiments in this matter, which would be a great confirmation to them against the the false teachers. So the Judaizer church members had listened, and they had changed their position. They had come into agreement with the judgment. They had been very far afield, and they had come into agreement with the judgment, at least the ones who remained there for the council. There may have been some who departed. We don't know. It's not mentioned. So the folks there in the council, they were not voted down. It was not a rush just to make it happen because you've got the votes. But through careful and patient and loving exchange, as we've discussed before, they were persuaded and they were brought to unanimity. This is a beautiful thing that we Christians should strive for. We should note that winning the debate is not the entire point of such a council, or really of any debate, but rather also to seek, to understand, to understand one another's interests, and to thereby gain new bonds in Christ together, as we express our love and our respect to one another with such godly and biblical communication. Next, we see church office bearers communicate their decision to the whole church, and they all come together in one accord. You can see by the way the language is, It was the church officers who made the decision, but then they took this decision to the whole church. They wanted the whole church to be together on this, and they were. So we need to note that wise and humble church leaders and church members work together to find unanimity whenever that is possible. That should be our goal. That should be our goal. We should never be satisfied with disunity. Now, of course, we're going to have disagreements and differences on various things, But when it comes to situations like this where big questions are being addressed, we should strive for unanimity and see with encouragement that the Holy Spirit can grant this to us as we go to His Word together. We should find great hope in this occurrence of unanimity. Next, we see here that the Jerusalem church loves and respects the Antioch church. It's not just a lever to pull. It's not just a question to answer. These are their brethren. It says here they sent leading men among the brethren of their own church to travel from Jerusalem to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And we know that both Judas and Silas, they are prophets. They're important members of this church, and they're offering to send them away. Judas, also named Barsabbas, um, from Acts 123, you may remember when they were looking for another apostle, they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. Now, this Judas who was called Barsabbas that we're talking about today is probably the brother of that Joseph who was called Barsabbas, who was a candidate to be an apostle back in chapter 1. So likely we see a family worshiping the Lord, growing closer to the Lord, and these men growing up in stature and influence in the church as a result. Next we see Silas, and he will encourage the saints at Antioch. After he's there, we'll look at that. And he will remain in Antioch and end up traveling with Paul during the second missionary journey. So we see great providence there. And this comes from the love of the Jerusalem church. See, love sacrifices. It cultivates relationships. It ponders relationships in every aspect 
of moving through any situation. The church at Antioch will miss out on the encouragement. The church at Jerusalem will miss out on the encouragement and the preaching of Silas and Judas. They won't have that while they're gone. Silas and Judas also, on their part, they're sacrificing. They'll be apart from their home church and their families, and they'll have to endure the travels with Paul and Barnabas and the others. Commentary says, to keep up the communion of the saints and cultivate an acquaintance between churches and ministers that were at a distance from each other, and to show that, though they were many, yet they were one. And this is the beauty of the regional church. It's the beauty of churches that come together in the form of what we call Presbyterianism, or any other form that's acting that way in whatever name they give it. The beauty of the regional church and how it strengthens one another and mutual encouragement. In addition to love, we see that there's respect here and respect will act with care to demonstrate to the other person that their interests are meaningful. Their status, where they are, is important and you'll, they'll do, do things to show this. The commentary says, to show their respect to the church at Antioch as a sister church though a younger sister, and, they, they, and that they looked upon it as upon the same level with them. So this is beautiful. This is loving. This is tender. And this is going to be present all through the entire letter that we look at. Next, they chose to communicate via written, via written letter. And clarity cannot be overemphasized. Uh, you've probably heard it said you cannot overcommunicate. communicate uh, Making sure that we nail things down Clarity of communication is so important. And with things that are so important, putting them in writing, very important. A critical decision like this could not be left to word of mouth communication. This decision is placed in writing both for the current situation and for future disputes. This they knew would be a circular letter that would, be, would go around the churches. And we'll see in Acts 16, that's exactly what Paul is doing when he goes on his second missionary journey. He takes this letter from Jerusalem through these churches. And as we now know, this has been placed in Scripture. So they wrote it down by God's direction with God's plan for it to be in Scripture. So brothers and sisters, I, I hope that you'll note that any important decision should be communicated in writing. Not just, by, not just by personal verbal communication. And as we will see the letters, not just clearly to state the judgment, but to state it warmly. So letter emphasizes clarity, but it doesn't remove warmth and we want to remember these things and use wisdom to know when we need to communicate in writing. We see, for example, um, members of one church going to another with a letter from the original church commenting on their status and their agreeable confession. So first, let's look at the greeting. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. First, let's look at the charity here. We see humility we see respect. You see those words to the brethren? You see that word, greetings? So what we have here is we have the apostles humbling themselves. The commentary says, that which intimates the humility of the apostles, that they join the elders and brethren in commission with them, the ministers, the ordinary Christians, whom they had advised with in this case, and they used to do in other cases. Though never men were so qualified as they were for a monarchical power and authority in the church, nor had such a commission as they had. So we see the importance of humility in communication and in decision-making, and that office-bearing is not to be lorded over. There's to be a corroboration together in deciding and in guiding afterwards. And the apostles really reveal this to us. God reveals this to us through the apostles. Certainly the Lord could have spoken revelation divinely through them to give the answer, but he chose not to. In addition, we see that there's respect here. Respect is found in these words, brethren and greetings. Listen to the commentary. That which bespeaks their respect to the churches they wrote to, they send to them this kind word, greeting. We wish them health and happiness and joy, and call them brethren of the Gentiles. And the word farewell at the end is the same thing. So from beginning to end, their sincere love that these Gentile believers would be blessed is evident in all their words. And they are blessing them by calling them brethren, thereby owning their admission into the church and giving them the right hand of fellowship, which answers the question, you do not have to become a Jew to be a Christian. 
It's as if they're saying, you are our brethren, though Gentiles, for we meet in Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, in God, our common Father. Now that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and of the same body, they are to be countenanced and encouraged, and they are to be called brethren. And the Gentiles had been troubled. Their souls had been unsettled. And these words would have been meaningful. And we'll see later, they rejoice, and they're encouraged by these words. There's a lot of clarity here as well. Uh, and there's clarity in all parts throughout. Uh, there's no ambig- ambiguity regarding from whom the letter is sent. It's very clear it's from the whole church at Jerusalem. The leaders and the members are in one accord with this message that's being sent. And the unanimity is emphasized, which is going to further strengthen the letter as it arrives there to the church. And also there is no ambiguity to whom the letter is sent. And this is important, as we'll see in Acts 16, because Timothy gets circumcised. This is a letter to Gentiles, to Gentile brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Commentary tells us about these regions And Paul is apt to uh, use uh, the Roman names for regions in his writing, the provinces. Syria, the region between the Taurus Mountains in the north and Judea in the south, was a Roman province since 64 BC. The seat of the governor was Antioch on the river Orontes. Cilicia, the region in Asia Minor, between Pamphylia in the west and Syria in the east, had become a Roman province in 102 BC but was ruled by native vassal rulers after Caesar died, then administered as a part of Syria after AD 17 until it became again a separate province in AD 72. Again, it shows us the historical reliability of the writings of Luke and that this is real history. These things really happened. And so the letter opens up with clarity, with, with, with charity, with love, speaking love, speaking love in the truth. So then it goes on to state the reasons for the letter in verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. So first, let's look at the charity here, the humility and the forbearance that are on display in this letter. And when I'm talking about humility, particularly it appears as though this church and its church leaders are taking responsibility in part for what has happened. Some who went out from us have troubled you. So it's not a focus here upon blaming those who went out and did the troubling. It points to some kind of an awareness that the entire church probably could have handled the situation better, which might have prevented the urge developing within the Judaizers to go out and trouble souls. So as they look back, they probably saw that they could have done better. And this is about self-examination even When the fault, the great fault, is not your own. Looking back in humility and self-examination and seeing what part did they play. And I think it's worth noting that the error of one church member is usually tangled up with the errors of other church members and leaders. We are a body. We are connected together. Next, we see forbearance. How is that revealed? There are no names given to these Judaizers. There are no names, no public names. The church chooses not to publicly shame these men. Now, there is certainly a time for publicly naming dangerous and divisive people and setting them apart, and we see Paul doing that from time to time in his letters, and John as well. But in this situation, it was not necessary to be in this letter, so it was left out. Wisdom and charity are on display here, and in the context of this biblical communication, to name these men was... Apparently, by the decision makers, not critical to the purpose of the letter. And it also demonstrates their wisdom and their forbearance because these men have really made a mess. These men have really made a mess. And you can imagine the temptation to want to put their names in here. But they didn't. And it, it should remind us, and it's, again, it's in Galatians. It's almost as if Paul is telling the church at Galatia how to deal with these men in Galatians 6 where we're there to gently restore them. And it appears as though they, many of them were restored because we know that they came to agreement on the decision. Next, clarity. First, they say, we have heard. So the church at Jerusalem apparently did not know that this was happening until they'd been informed by Paul and Barnabas and the delegation sent from Antioch. And they wanted the church at Antioch to know that. We were not aware this was happening. So the Jerusalem church, though, they did want them to know that they, were, they took action upon gaining the knowledge. That's an important part of the story that needed clarification. 
Next, another clarification is that this is a this false message. It is a troubling message, and it unsettles souls. And that's really the last thing that any of us should ever want to do to one another, is to trouble each other and unsettle one another's souls. Commentary says they took them off from pursuing pure Christianity and minding the business of that by filling their heads with the necessity of circumcision and the law of Moses, which were nothing to the purpose. This shows us that, uh, and other things here, that part of speaking the truth is saying hard things if needed. Sometimes hard things need, need to be said for the purpose of clarity. So we see some, some things here that are, may have been hard to say. The false message is stated very clearly. You must be circumcised and keep the law. And the false message is rejected clearly to whom we gave no such commandment. So these are hard words that would have demonstrated the foolishness and the failure of those who had gone out from them. And finally, that these false messengers were acting on their own, not, not with commandment from the Jerusalem church. Commentary says... Now this is to let them know that those who preached this doctrine were false teachers, both as they produced a false commission and as they taught a false doctrine. So while these men were not named publicly, what they did was publicly rejected and clearly defined as a false message and that they went out on their own and that this apparent commission that they thought they may have had was not from the church in Jerusalem. Next. In this letter, they want to emphasize the personal communication. So in this written letter, they choose to emphasize the personal nature, the non-written communication that's taking place as well. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. So let's look at this phrase here. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. Who is the us? The us here references those who are the senders, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, so the entire church at Jerusalem. And the emphasis here is also upon the unanimity of the decision. And what did they decide here? To send chosen men to Antioch. And this is the first point. I think it's worth noting in the letter, this is the first point emphasized, not the judgment itself. The Jerusalem church leads with love and respect They've laid out the false message. They've demonstrated that it was false, but even done so with forbearance. And even now, as they move into giving the judgment, they do so with continued tenderness and careful love in their words along the way. The Jerusalem church, again, is leading with love and respect in their communication. Look at these words, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. It's a form of gratitude to the church in Antioch for these men no longer being with them. It's also a way of bolstering their influence when they return so that the Judaizers, Judaizers will understand that Barnabas and Paul are beloved and respected influential men by the church in Jerusalem. They're much loved by the Jerusalem church, and they want the Antioch church to know it, and they want all the people in Antioch to know it as well. They say this about them, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These two beloved men are both proven men. In multiple situations, they laid their lives on the line for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What greater proof can you have? Commentary says, they, they have ventured their all for Christ, have engaged in the most dangerous services as good soldiers of Christ, and not only in laborious services. It is not likely that such faithful confessors should be unfaithful preachers. Those that urged circumcision did it to avoid persecution. Those that opposed it knew that they thereby exposed themselves to persecution. And which of these were most likely to be in the right? So we see here that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Paul and Barnabas demonstrating that are sent as examples of this back to the Antioch, to the Antioch church to say thank you. And we see tenderness in the first, in the middle, and in the last of their communication. It's as if the Jerusalem church is aware. Maybe they considered, maybe they talked about the sacrifice of the Antioch church, being without Paul and Barnabas and others that they had selected to send in that delegation. And to support that, they probably had to pay for them to go and the sacrifices associated with it. And so the Jerusalem church, they get this. They receive this love 
and they want to express love and respect in a similar fashion by sending back two of their chosen men. It's like, okay, well, you sent two of your chosen, we're going to send you two of our chosen in return as a, well, as a way of expressing this unity and this love for one another. So brothers and sisters, please note the emphasis upon warmth and love even in the midst of this high-level, critical, ecclesiastical, judicial communication. What has your experience been in regard to this? What has your observation of presbyteries and church courts at work been? Have you seen this kind of tenderness and compassion along with wisdom and clarity and boldness in speech? Together, valuing relationships while never undervaluing the truth. Have you seen this at work? I will tell you, for me, this is one of the reasons I love the CPC so much. It's because I observe this at work amongst the men of this presbytery. Mistakes have been made. We could have done better in communication. We came up with a ruling in October a couple of years ago in regards to Elder Robinette, and we didn't deliver it in person. That was a big mistake. We should have sent an elder or two to go in person with that letter and to express our love and our concern to that church at that time. And so I think even in this here, we can see, looking back, you may have as well in your experience times when you wish you would have put it in writing and in person. Note also, please, the main point of clarity in this section. What is it? Who will also report the same things by word of mouth. So they want them to know that they're there, yes, as an encouragement, but also they are there to be a source of clarity and a source of truth to corroborate what is in the letter. They will provide personal communication and love, but also corroboration regarding the letter's content. Commentary says, What is of use to us, it is good to have both in writing and by word of mouth, that we may have the advantage both of reading and of hearing it. The apostles referred them to the bearers for a further account of their judgment and their reasons. And the bearers will refer them to their letters for the certainty of the determination. So we see a synergy. It's one of the principles of today's sermon. We see a synergy between personal verbal communication and written communication. And it aids the recipients. So both these things come together as a service to the recipients of the communication to make it easier for them to hear and to understand the message in clarity and in charity. So, sending Judas and Silas serve, this, their sending serves first to express their love and respect and second, to clearly confirm the letter's content as the true judgment of the council. And those two things come together in synergy. And we should learn from this. We should think this through in our own engagements and interactions. So what is the decree section? Here it is. They've set the stage. They're reading the letter. When is this letter being read? It's being read to the church there at Antioch. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So first we see the judgment's source is the Holy Spirit of God working in and amongst the council when it is formally assembled. And again, this is love. This is them pointing to the Lord, pointing to God for His glory, for His authority, for His name's sake, not not for them. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Let's talk about this. Let's think about it. In what way did it seem good to the Holy Spirit? Now, again, it, it, didn't, it doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit re- revealed. The Holy Spirit spoke. It's not as if there was some divine revelation that took place during the council. Maybe it did. We're not told that it didn't. But in this phrase here, we should not think that it was divine revelation. So what was it? Well, let's think about it. What has the Holy Spirit done? The Holy Spirit has worked in multiple ways to reveal, reveal His will on this matter through the years. First, Peter was granted his visions that undid the Old Testament dietary laws. They've got that. The Holy Spirit did that. 
Next, Peter saw the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius and his household before they became Jews. He saw that too. Also, looking at Paul and Barnabas, independent witnesses, they have observed the work of the Holy Spirit amongst the Gentiles in the same way. So there's these two witnesses that rise up as they're having their debate, and where do they point? They point to the Holy Spirit. So the men assemble together to make the decision. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit because they see what the Holy Spirit has done. So in this way, they could say that their decree seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Commentary says it refers to what the Holy Ghost had determined in this matter formerly. When the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles, he endued them with the gift of tongues in order to their preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, which was a plain indication of God's purpose to call them in. When the Holy Ghost descended upon Cornelius and his friends, upon Peter's preaching, it was plain that Christ designed the taking down of the Jewish pale, within which they fancied the Spirit had been enclosed. So that's most likely what they meant. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit based on what they had seen the Holy Spirit do, receiving testimony from Peter and Paul and Barnabas. In addition, their unanimity after dispute is another evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. Think about it. At the end of their decision, they could look at the unanimity and say, this is the Holy Spirit at work. Sinful men do not humble themselves before God's truth without God's Spirit working in their midst. So also in this way, the council could observe the Spirit's work and thus say that their decree seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And you see the uncertainty expressed in that word. It seemed good. This is humility at work. And yet, when it comes together and it's expressed in this way by a church council, we see that it is expressed as that which is to be followed. And we'll see the word command as we move on. But it also seemed good to us. And this is beautiful to see the way that we get to interact with the Holy Spirit in, in such councils as this, and I believe also in, in session meetings, when, in consistory meetings, when church officers come together. I think in your families, when you come together before the Holy Spirit, the same type of decision-making will be in place. Their observations of what seemed good to the Holy Spirit led them all to agree that it also seemed good to them. And can't we say if it seems good to the Holy Spirit, it should seem good to us? And that's where they were. Next. I want us to see that this judgment that they do reveal to them now is first couched, surrounded in, in more tender language, more brotherly love. Love and respect leading the way. Love and respect leading the way in communication. What, what, is, what phrase am I referring to? To lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Commentary says, note, church rulers should impose only necessary things, things which Christ has made our duty, which have a real tendency to the edification of the church and, as here, to the uniting of good Christians. If church leaders impose things only to show their own authority and to try people's obedience, they forget that they have not authority to make new laws, but only to see that the laws of Christ be duly executed and to enforce observance of them. Next. The council gave only the very necessary commands they found in keeping with Old Testament Scripture and with ongoing New Testament revelation by the Spirit. They didn't want to lay burdens on them. They, they only gave the burden that was necessary. And to express it in that fashion is a way of revealing to those whom you are leading that you are utterly in submission or trying to be utterly in submission to God and His Word. That's humility. That's tenderness. Only that which is necessary from Scripture. Commentary says they express themselves with abundance of tenderness and fatherly concern. First, they are afraid of burdening them. We will lay upon you no greater burden. So far were they from delighting to impose upon them that they dreaded nothing so much as imposing too far upon them so as to discourage them at their setting out. And secondly, they impose upon them no other than necessary things. 
And then they go on to give the four abiding prohibitions of ceremonial law that do go on, listed for the Gentile Christians to understand and obey. So please recall last week's sermon. If you didn't hear it, please listen to it. Where we learned that these four prohibitions are from Leviticus 17 and 18. And they persist because they're the only sections of the ceremonial law that was required not only for Jews, but also for the strangers and the aliens. So this section of ceremonial law has moral law qualities to it in that it abides even after the Sinai covenant is brought to an end. And you see there in your sermon notes, again, I've listed out the sections Leviticus 17 and 18 that correspond to each of those four areas that were passed on. And it's really important to consider, again, the ongoing idolatry and the blood sacrifice and the sexual immorality associated with these, the pantheon worship that was in place throughout the Roman world at that time. They were pagans in the true sense, meaning they believed in a spiritual realm and they believed you had to appease these demons through these activities. And so it was a very big thing then and it continues to be a very big thing and it is why it is an abiding commandment throughout all ages for Jews and Gentiles, of all Christian types, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And we can say at this point in time that the practice of the ceremonial law that was still going on lawfully while this was written is now over. There are no Jews in that sense any longer, or there shouldn't be. Next. They just keep loving on them. The final words, again, wrap the entire letter in love and tenderness. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Notice their focus. They, they want them to be blessed. Not, we therefore command you. Not, you will be punished if you disobey us. But an encouragement based upon them considering their own profit and what will bring blessing to them. As if to say, if you obey these commands, it will go well for you. And this is always the way that we should present God's commandments to people. Yes, there are certainly threatenings, but this type of person, as we can see, this type of message to this group of people didn't need the threatenings. They could have put them in there. But where do we start? We start with the blessings. As we're leading other Christians, we focus on the blessings. And I think it's good for us to note the contrast with the false commands, ugliness and threatenings. That's often the case. False teachers will start with threatenings. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15.1 And so as we raise up our children, as we disciple one another, as we bless one another, we first call each other to the blessings of obedience. We first call one another to the fruitfulness and the joy of obedience to God. And then finally, farewell. It ends the way it started. It is a simple closing that expresses the sincere love of the church of Jerusalem towards the church at Antioch. And it doesn't require a lot of words to express that. You can just say farewell. This is probably the simplest benediction I know of. Farewell. That they would walk in the blessings of God. The commentary says about that word that they're saying to them, the Jerusalem church saying to the Antioch church, we are hearty well-wishers to your honor and your peace. And so do you see the tone throughout this entire letter of their love and their respect towards their brethren? Well, what is the fruit of this? There is rejoicing and encouragement in Antioch and there is church growth. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And this is another key uh, encouragement principle for us that when we embrace these biblical forms of communication, God grants to us to speak the truth in love with, and sincerity and clarity, we should expect fruitfulness. We should expect this type of fruitfulness. They had a successful journey and the Antioch church is interested. They haven't dispersed. God is still at work in their midst. Somehow those who were still there were continuing to preach the word and keep them encouraged and interested in the reply. And it says the whole church came together. They're called the multitude. 
Look at, well, look at the fruitfulness that God is bringing here. So they, and then they listen. They listen. They're hearing it. And what do they do? The entire multitude rejoices. They rejoice over it. And they call it its encouragement. They rejoice over its encouragement. And when you speak the truth in love, the, the product, the reactants, truth and love, the product is encouragement. Real encouragement. Real encouragement to your soul. And they're rejoicing that they're encouraged. And that would include that they're encouraged by both its clear answer and its loving and respectful tone. And certainly it would include the, the growing knowledge that this is a great church in Jerusalem with great leaders in whom God is working to bless the rest of the world. Praise be to God for the church at Jerusalem. Praise be to God for our connection with them. Matthew Henry lists four specific reasons why they would have been encouraged. I think it's worth hearing these four. That they were confirmed in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law and were not burdened with that as those upstart teachers would have had them to be. It was a comfort to them to hear that the carnal ordinances were no longer imposed on them, which perplexed the conscience but could not purify nor pacify it. And so it would have been encouraging to them. They would have been wondering to themselves, circumcision, really? They would have been thinking, all of those ceremonial laws, really? Back to all the dietary laws? That would have been a burden. And it would have been a great encouragement to them to know that that was not required. Next, that those who troubled their minds with an attempt to force circumcision upon them were hereby for the present silenced and put to confusion, the fraud of their pretensions to an apostolic warrant being now discovered. So not only were they unsettled in their souls, but they probably had people around them who were continuing to say things to unsettle their souls. Not only did they get the message of truth, but they knew that the people who had been unsettling their souls were no longer going to trouble them. That would have been a great encouragement. Next, that the Gentiles were hereby encouraged to receive the gospel and those that had received it to adhere to it. Certainly their evangelistic efforts would have been somewhat blunted as they were waiting for this response. I don't know. Maybe you will have to be circumcised. Maybe you will have to keep the law. I don't know. But now they can leave that out as they're ministering and evangelizing their Gentile connections there in that region. What a comfort. What an encouragement that would be to them. Next, that the peace of the church was hereby restored and that removed which threatened a division. All this was consolation which they rejoiced in and blessed God for. I mean, think about it. The Jews and the Gentiles had been eating together and now this unsettling thing comes in and the whole community would have been impacted negatively by this until they got an answer. And they're rejoicing because that whole beautiful thing that was happening is now restored. And, and amongst the church, the Jews and the Gentiles, they're eating together again without conscience issues. They're enjoying one another's food again without worrying about it. They're ministering to Jew and Gentile alike together again without the fear of this question over their heads. And then there's mutual encouragement between Antioch and Jerusalem. The church in Antioch, it's like, you know, love is an eternal echo. Love is an eternal echo. One heart to another forever and ever. And I don't know about you, but I'm just really rejoicing in marriage as I think about this. Uh, those folks who are married, it's just an eternal echo of love back and forth between our hearts. And we see this here. Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. They didn't just send them back. They sent them back with greetings. They wanted the church at Jerusalem to know they were thankful. So further fruit as a result of their personal communication to Antioch is in view here. The men they send are prophets who exhort and strengthen the church at Antioch. What love and mutual encouragement is on display? The church in Antioch, surely they love their church leaders, they love Paul and Barnabas, but now they get to receive ministry from these men who are prophets from Jerusalem and experience the blessing of the word from them as well. Even those that had the constant preaching of Paul and Barnabas yet were glad of the help of Judas and Silas. The diversity of the gifts of ministers is of use to the church. And this would be more bind, more uh, ties that would uh, bind their hearts together in love between these two churches over time. Who knows? Maybe their kids got married in the future. Uh, who knows what kind of things might have happened as a result of these relationships. 
And they sent them back with greetings. The church at Antioch has been very much encouraged. They've been rejoicing by the letter and then strengthened by the preaching and the exhortation of the men who were sent to them. And so they want to express their gratitude. This is the echo of love. And this back and forth and the dance of love builds the bonds in Christ and strengthens the regional church over time and strengthens relationships amongst husband and wife, parents and children, between families over time. As we express love to one another, isn't it just natural when someone loves on you that you, you just you want to love them back? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's the way God made it. We see also a providential blessing here that Silas decided to stay in Antioch. Another fruit. Now, I can't say it's always a direct fruit, but at least in this situation, we can see a great blessing. Silas decides to stay in Antioch. It seemed good to Silas to remain there. He's looking around. He's seeing that he's being able to be a blessing there. And for whatever reason, he decides, this is the place for me to stay for now at least. What a great blessing. Think about it. This is before Paul and Barnabas part ways over John Mark. Silas's decision wasn't because he knew that something was going to go wrong and that Paul was really going to need him. So Paul will have a proven prophet, Silas, who's not only proven himself in Jerusalem, in the journey, and there at Antioch with the delivery of the message and with the preaching at Antioch. But he's just right there alongside Paul. Traveling with him during his second very long missionary journey. And we're going to start that in a couple of weeks. And it's an exciting missionary journey. The second one. All the way into Macedonia and Achaia. All the way around uh, the Aegean Sea. It's a, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful journey we're going to look at. He's going to go over the Taurus Mountains to get there. I can't wait for us to go through it together. I want us to know that God... I want us to see this. Let me ask you this. You ever played one of those um, silly games where you, know, you see it's a video game or maybe just a board game? And there's a little thing there, a trinket you can pick up or not along the way in your journey. And if you don't grab it, a couple of chapters later you're like, oh, I should have got that thing. Right? Well, see, the Lord knows ahead of time. Right? He knows ahead of time. He, he wrote the whole thing. He wrote the whole thing. He knows what we need. And he gives it to us before we need it. And we're just holding on to this thing. I was like, I wonder what this is for. Right? He knew that Paul would need Silas. So God knows our needs and often supplies them before we even know we have the need. God knows our needs and often supplies them before we even know we have the need. Let us rejoice in his great care for his church. And finally, Paul and Barnabas once again minister to the church. So they have been greatly encouraged and they're back in their roles there in Antioch. What, what we've heard from commentaries said, if there was ever a heaven on earth, it had to have been the church at Antioch. I mean, we've talked about everywhere else they went where there was a church, they're just getting pummeled. They're getting buffeted. They're getting attacked. What's going on in Antioch? <coughs> Joy, gladness, growth, strengthening, the word of God going forth and being believed and lived out, evangelism, the spread of the church through Syria and Cilicia. And they're back at it. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. With many other also, with, with many others also, which shows church growth, but it also church shows church leadership growth. How great is that? With many others also. There are many others who are also preaching and teaching the word of the Lord. Can we ever have too many teachers and preachers of the word of the Lord? So the pattern of ministerial work returns to normal at Antioch, except now with a great move of God in their past, there's this great event they've been through together they can look at. And with a new minister in their midst, Silas, helping them. And I think we see here ministerial work is summarized so clearly. Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. In season and out of season. All the time. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. We see church growth. It says with many others also. Commentary says Paul and Barnabas. Though their work lay chiefly among the Gentiles. Yet continued for some time in Antioch. Being pleased with the society of the ministers and people there which it should seem by divers passages was more than ordinarily inviting. They continued there not to take their pleasure, but teaching and preaching the word of God. And all those who are, are called will forever burn to do such thing, to preach and teach the word of the Lord. May the Lord grant us many others here who would preach 
and teach the word of the Lord. So I have nine principles that I want to point out to you in way of summary for you to consider in application to your life. First of all, I really hope that you will each study and consider that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth and what that means and what a joy it is for us to be a part of it together. I hope you will consider this. Next, I hope you will see the importance of a plurality of elders. We see this on display here. And may God grant to our church to have a plurality of elders. We're very thankful for the help of the CPC, are we not? Very thankful for the other elders who are helping us. But we need local elders. May God grant this to us. Next, look at this concept of one accord. Look at this concept of unanimity. Brothers and sisters, this is a gift of God. And it is the fruit of humility. It's a fruit of humility. I hope that you will ponder this and understand that divisions most often don't come from an inability to find truth together. It just comes from pride. It just comes from pride most of the time. If we're willing to submit ourselves to God's word, we're going to find truth. And we're going to find one accord. God loves the unity of his church. The one accord, the being of one mind in his church. Next, I hope that you will ponder this beautiful reality of speaking the truth in love and see that so often we're pulled in one direction or the other. If we want to be encouragers, we must learn how to speak the truth in love. Some people are very gifted at speaking the truth. You know they're going to tell you what's wrong. They're really good at telling you what's wrong. They're really good at spotting things that need to be fixed. And there are a lot of people who are always kind and loving and friendly. But you know you're not necessarily going to get any sort of like needful input necessarily from them unless you ask for it. These are examples of how we can go to one extreme or the other and being unbalanced. If you want to be an encourager, learn to speak the truth in love. And the tenderness and the, and the, and the compassion and the gentle speech is start, middle, and end woven all the way through as we're speaking the truth in love. And this will show itself in humility, in respect of honoring and desiring to know one another's interests. It will reveal itself through honest self-examination. Whatever problems are being discussed, our own contribution to it will be as, as important to our mind as anyone else's, or even more important. And if there is a restoration needed, it will be gentle. It will be relational. It'll always be tender because it's always looking to God. This type of communication is always looking for God's glory. Biblical, biblical communication is first and foremost for God's glory. And God loves his children to be in joyful, peaceable relationships with one another as they're being sanctified, as they're growing up in Christ together. In addition, there will only be that which is necessary spoken whether it's church leaders or whether it's in relationship with one another. In terms of speaking the truth, there'll be clarity in all parts. You won't, you won't have to shy away from speaking what needs to be said throughout the whole story, and you'll be able to say hard things. And it is the love and the compassion and the tenderness that provides the trust and relationship to be able to do that. Next. I hope you'll see the beauty of the regional church on display here and love Presbyterianism. I hope that you will do that. Not that I claim that it is the only answer or the only biblical way to do things, but I do believe it is at least one beautiful example of biblical church polity. Next, I hope you'll rejoice in God's providence and how he cares for us, provides our needs often before we need them. I hope that you will consider the times when you need to provide written communication instead of just verbal communication in important decisions and that you will see the synergy between written and verbal communication that is intended to be a part of the way biblical communication takes place in important situations. And then I hope that you will rejoice in the fruitfulness of biblical communication, that we will see the church strengthened and see the church grow as we submit ourselves to God's church and to God's ways. Let us pray. 
Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in Your Word to us today, and we ask that You, by Your Spirit, would engrave the truth of Your Word upon our hearts and minds, and that our minds would be renewed, and that we would indeed be transformed together more to the likeness of Christ, our glorious Savior and King, in whose name we pray, Amen.